All right, let me open with this thought. Philip Ryken in his commentary on Exodus makes this statement. <clears throat> he says, as we study the tabernacle, it's important not to lose sight of the big picture. God coming down to live with his people. The Bible describes the tabernacle carefully because every part of the building has something to teach about God and his salvation in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the tabernacle was partly pedagogical and it was illustrative. It was to teach something. It's an object lesson. While it may be true that we can't find Jesus everywhere, it nevertheless remains true that the tabernacle is a revelation of his glory. Jesus is in many of the details. And he makes a little qualifying statement here. He says, although it is important to see how Christ is taught in all the scriptures, we shouldn't try to find him in places he doesn't actually appear. And so sometimes there's an over attempt to ascribe every little detail in a way that maybe the Bible didn't exactly mean for us to do that. But here's what I want us to be mindful of as we study the tabernacle. And this would be true because remember the tabernacle is an illustration of the greater tabernacle. A tabernacle in the heavens and also God being among us in the person of Christ. So he is a tabernacle upon this earth of the dwelling of God. But here's what I would want us to be very careful about and very mindful of as well. The tabernacle is intended to take us somewhere. It's intended to give something to us, to make something available to us. It's not just information to come to know. It doesn't serve its purpose for which God gave it. If you and I become tuned into all the details, we know all the furnishings in the tabernacle, we know the dimensions of the tabernacle, we know what everything was made of, we know all the colors that are present, we know what all the colors illustrate. And, and we can write a quick paragraph on every bit of the details that are in the tabernacle. But that's not exactly what God had in mind when he gave us the tabernacle, right? He gave us a tabernacle so that he could dwell among us and we could experience the nearness of his presence. And have you already recognized that this is true of the Bible? You can memorize a lot of Bible facts and still not experience the nearness of God's presence. Even, dare I say, you can understand how the tabernacle illustrates even a greater truth than what's in the Old Testament. How the tabernacle illustrates Christ. And you can understand what took place at the cross and what bloodshed means and what cleansing means. You can understand all those things and still not draw near to God, even though you know all that stuff. And this is sadly too true for way too many of us as Christians. It's true for them as well. I mean, God often had to correct them that they had the form of all that he had taught but their hearts were far from him. Their encounter with him had stopped taking place. And listen, this can be true here as well. When God gives this tabernacle illustration, it's for purpose. And that purpose is nearness. It's for us to be 
reconciled to the actual experiencing of the nearness of God in our lives. Listen, if, if, if you were a person that I had had a lifelong relationship with when we were very close and we had been separated for years and years and I found out that you were going to be anywhere in the area and I gave you directions to my house and I told you drive down I-10 this far get off at this exit then look for this next exit you can't miss it because there's a a restaurant there and there's this big giant building it's really cool unusual you've never seen anything like it you turn right right there you go down a two-lane road there's going to be bushes on both sides and I give you all these details and you memorize every one of those details you know exactly how to get to my house and you can share that with anybody and you do and my name comes up and you say, oh, when you, if you're going to Keith's house, you go this way and you go past here and you turn on this spot right here and you'll see this unusual building that's like nothing you've ever seen before. And you can just relay all of that stuff. It's sort of like saying, you know, if you come before God, there's going to be this big brazen altar thing there and, and there's going to be a sacrifice, there'll be blood all over the ground and then behind that there's going to be a laver. There's going to be cleansing going on. You'll go behind this veil and there's going to be these other things we'll talk about today. And you can repeat all that stuff to everybody. I didn't give you those directions so you can memorize them and tell them to everybody else. Why did I give them to you? Because I want you to come to me and I want you to be with me and I want us to be together. And we turn this Bible sometimes into this thing that we memorize. We have very little experience of the nearness of God. What a sweet thing that the God of the universe wants to be with, with us. So please don't add more facts. Well, you need the facts. I'm not going to criticize knowing these things. Just please don't come up short. Think that if I can explain the tabernacle, uh, I've kind of got this thing, right? Do you remember this passage we looked at in Hebrews chapter 10? I think it was last week. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Do you get what this verse is getting at? It is stating all these incredible things are true. All that the tabernacle illustrated has been fulfilled in Christ And we have this incredible way that's been opened up to us. And and he was being typified in these places in the Old Testament. And since all these things are true, and we can all acknowledge that, celebrate it. But then this verse turns around and says, but you're, you're standing too far away. That's what this verse says. It says, you know all these things to be true. And let me remind you of them, what the writer to Hebrews does. Now the Christian gets reminded of all the things that make Christianity Christianity. And that's great. And we need to know that. But then he turns around and says, but you're standing too far away, brothers. Let us draw near. This is why we learn about the tabernacle. Is this helping you experience the nearness of God? And all that God would do with us and through us and to us if that were being experienced. I think I wrote this in your outline. Knowing great facts about the tabernacle and even ultimately about Christ doesn't mean we've experientially arrived. What God had in mind was 
nearness, dwelling, presence in our midst. Tim Keller's excellent book on prayer illustrates an aspect of this. He says, prayer is a conversation that leads to encounter with God. That is our goal. Prayer is a conversation that leads to encounter with God. Well, okay, so what does that mean? That means prayer is not always an encounter with God. And I'm not saying it should always be that. But when we feel like it is seldom that, if ever that, we need to step back from our activity of prayer and say, is the way I pray and approach God leading me into the presence of God? Or is it just something I check off and I do and I know that I've taken care of that? He goes on and says, character, a character forming experience of God's presence and reality. John Calvin argues that Jesus' gifts for his people are not experienced by so many of them. That enjoyment, he says, can happen only through, listen, communion with Christ and the secret energy of the Holy Spirit by which we come to enjoy all his benefits. We must not settle for an informed mind without an engaged heart. Now, Tim Keller's not talking about the tabernacle. This is not a commentary on the tabernacle, but he says two things that we're going to actually pick up today. Communion with Christ, and he calls it the secret energy of the Holy Spirit, right? We're proud to pass beyond this first veil into a room that's got three pieces of furniture in it. And one of them would be a communion dimension. A table of bread is set in this place. And another would be a a lampstand through which this, really I think what Keller says right here, the secret energy of the Holy Spirit, the light that the Spirit of God gives to us is in that place. These things are helping us to experience God's presence. And last thing I wrote there before we get into these details, here's where we are seeking to arrive at the conclusion of this tabernacle. Not merely at the place where you can say, I can explain all the pieces of the tabernacle now. But rather, through what I've learned, I have encountered the nearness of God's presence. So that's why we're learning this. Because remember, that's what God said he wanted. He was installing this. He said, that I may dwell among you. Not just that you could memorize this and pass a test on it. But that you might know I'm near to you. And be mindful of that. All right, so I think I've got a bigger picture of the tabernacle. Let me look the, back away from that one. I think there's a bigger one somewhere in that list. Well, we need a bigger one than that, but I'll take that one. Um, you guys will remember, we are, we are moving beyond the first veil into this place called the Holy Place. Before we got there, there remember we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the brazen altar. The sacrifice that was... Sh- taking place there, the bloodshed, the cleansing of our sins. We talked last week, I think it was, the being mindful that your approach to God could not escape and should not escape a self-awareness. That there, there is sin in me, that I fall short of the glory of God, which I am approaching. I am approaching God's glory. I fall short of that. I don't need to deny that. I don't need to avoid that. 
I need to take that awareness to the brazen altar, which we understand in the New Testament is the cross of Christ, and transfer that to him so that the Lamb of God may take my sins away. Now, we're going to move to the next place now. And I just want us to be mindful of when we learn what's going on in this next chamber, this holy place. Well, let me just be clear about what's not going on in it. What we just did in the outer court is not what's going on in this dimension of experiencing God's presence. In this setting where you see those pieces of furnishings there, the lamp and the table of bread and the altar of incense, you get to enjoy these things because blood has been shed, because you are cleansed and you now can enter beyond the veil. Now, I say this because when, when you get into this place, there are dimensions that God wants us to be aware of. These three pieces of furniture are all shouting at us and they're teaching us something. Now, if you have dragged with you the brazen altar into this setting and all these things are shouting at you, but what's shouting louder for you is an awareness of your sin and the fact that you feel guilty and that you feel like a failure and you haven't done what God would have you do in all kinds of areas of your life and you've fallen short and you're more mindful of that. So you don't hear these things speaking to you because... You didn't let the outer court deal with these things in you the way they needed to. And I'm going to shove responsibility back into your lap here. When you walk into a church setting, I said this last week, I'm, I'm concerned about it. When you walk into a church setting, a setting that if you have not learned to deal with your sin the way the Bible does, then this will eventually become a setting you won't want to be in. Because it's not a problem for me to talk about sin from the pulpit. I don't have a problem with that. Because I got a lot of faith in that brazen altar and what it accomplishes for us. I'm aware of what the cross did to my sin and yours. So if I have a giant awareness of that, as I said, you know, I'm out walking my lion and your little chihuahua of sin comes barking at me. I got no problem with that thing. I've got a big, awesome thing that God did outside the camp on the cross on my behalf. It's not a problem for me to talk about my sin. If it's a problem for you, can I just shove this responsibility back in your lap? It's because you haven't taken the time to draw near to the brazen altar and experience what it is doing in your life. And you got to answer for why that's the case. Why is that? Just, just too busy? Just got other things going on? Don't like to go there? You, you, got, you got your reasons and I got mine. But can I just tell you, you are never going to escape the power of sin without visiting and fully becoming aware of what Christ has done on your behalf. You know, when, if you come, you know, if you've known me forever, and there's some people in here who have almost known me forever, and you were to say, Keith, I know some things about you. 
Which, by the way, to fall short of the glory of God, you wouldn't have to revisit my issues of when I was a lost person. Right? You could just come hang out with me and my wife and say, oh, fell short right there, Keith. Come sit in an elders meeting. Uh, Keith, fell short right there. And some of the elders are laughing. Amen. <laughs> no, laughing is different than amening, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, you know, there's a falling short, but you know, if, if that gets served up to me by the reality of life, there's something greater in my life than that. And it, and it gives me a sense of courage to be able to feel bad. You know, your spouse keeps bringing up what you did. You keep bringing up what I did. No, 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 no. And you don't like that. So you, you almost think they're wrong for your guilt. Well, I don't know. Are they accurate? Did you actually do that? Yeah. All right. Well, you got to own it then, don't you? You did that. But I don't like to hear that about me. How about you hear something greater than that to rescue you from it? Instead of requiring everybody else to stop bringing it up with you. Because if that's what you're going to do, you're going to have to like find an island somewhere to live and shut down all communications because... People are going to remind you of your sin. And and if they don't actually remind you by coming up and pointing it out to you, you'll remind yourself when you go comparing yourself with how well they're doing. Just sit in a small group, right? And let somebody say, oh man, I'm coming off of three weeks of devotions in a row. Every day, an hour with God. It's like the Shekinah's in my living room. (laughs) And immediately, how do you feel about that? Jeez. I don't even know where my Bible is. I mean, I know I got one on my app in the phone, but geez, I read it in traffic for about three minutes yesterday. <sighs> right? Condemned, right? Well, you better stay away from that guy because he's, he's a hot item. He's going to make you feel condemned, right? Is that how you're going to manage sin? Listen, we are, we are into this next chamber because what took place outside gave us confidence to draw near. That's what that verse in Hebrews is talking about. Where do you get your confidence from? Well, I'm on a roll. I mean, I've been having my devotions every day. I am so confident. Bring God near to me. I feel so good about myself. Uh, really? Did you read Hebrews? Because that's not where you get your confidence from. You get your confidence from what happened outside that veil. When blood was shed and you were cleansed from a guilty conscience. Now you have confidence to enter this next chamber. And in this next chamber, it's not featuring dealing with your sins. Although that was part of the whole tabernacle, wasn't it? So there's three things in this chamber. And the first one, remember, we're approaching the presence of God. We're we're coming in from man's side. God's God's writing about this in, in Exodus approaches things from his vantage point. So it is, he creates the tabernacle. He lowers it down to man. He says, I'm the one who wants to dwell with you. I'm drawing near to you. In all your mess, I'm drawing near. And so first we learn about the ark, which we're going to learn about last. But first God reveals the ark. The next thing he reveals is the table of bread in Exodus chapter 25. So turn there with me. And we're going to answer two things on every one of these pieces of furnishings. We're going to answer how Christ is revealed in this furnishing. And how does this help us draw near? Because this is what God's wanting to accomplish. So just a quick 
view of what this furnishing is. Chapter 25, verse 23. says, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. Then down in verse 30 it says, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Right? And Leviticus chapter 24, that's teaching the priest about their role in the book of Leviticus says this about the bread. Verse 5 in chapter 24 says, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put your frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Right, so what, what, what is this table all about? Well, it's kind of interesting here because this, uh, this is a rather common element. It's going to be dressed out in gold. But remember, this is, this is God inviting man into his tent. Right? This is as close as we get to, hey, come on into the house of God. And when you come into this house, there's a table there. Now, what do you do at the table in your house? You eat, right? You gather around the table and you eat. This is, if you will, this is God's kitchen table. This is God inviting you into a setting where you're going to sit down with God. And you're going to do what you would do at a table with someone. John Calvin says, This was no ordinary symbol of God's favor when he descended familiarly to them as if he were their messmate. We don't use that word mess anymore. Remember mess hall? It's when you you go eat. It's not about making a mess. It's about eating. They were called the bread of faces because they were placed before the eyes of God. And thus he made known his special favor as if coming to banquet with them. This is the God of the universe who has this idea. This is not man's idea. This is God saying, I want you to arrange a table for me. And I want you to put bread on that table. That bread's going to be representative of something. And this entire table gathering is representative of something. One commentator says this offering was not to feed Yahweh. The purpose was exactly the opposite. To acknowledge that he supplied the ongoing needs of the Israelites as their resident creator provider. Right, And that's interesting, that creator provider dimension here. Because what's associated with eating a meal in the presence of God 
historically and in the scriptures and just just before this time was done was a covenant existing between God and man. The first time that we have recorded in Exodus this eating dimension, I think it's the first time, is when they arrive at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, which you could say the mountain of God is going to illustrate the same things that the tabernacle does. You've got all the people who are told to remain in the distance at the base. Remember, they can't, they can't touch the mountain. They can't come any closer. But then God allows for the elders to have access at a greater level, just like the priests had access here. And when they come up on the mountain, God makes a covenant with his people, and the elders eat a meal on the mountain. It's a covenant meal. So I think the reason for God, why this is, this is God's revelation. I'm going to lower this tabernacle to you. Let me start with my presence being manifest in the most holy place. Next, let's talk about the table of bread. Because I think the table is illustrative of eating a covenant meal with God. It is God communicating something to us. It's God saying a number of things. You've got 12 pieces of bread. So you've got an illustration there of the nation of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel are being spoken to from God. That you are my people whom I am providing for. And I have made a special arrangement with you. In covenant with you. So the first thing God communicates, and this is to help us draw near, right? Is that we have a special arrangement with God. Those 12 tribes had access to God in a way that the rest of the world did not. Because God had made a covenant with them. And he wanted them to be mindful of that. And you and I are going to need to be mindful of that if we're going to draw near. We draw near because a covenant exists between us and God. Well, how does this table of bread, how does it reveal Christ? I mean, just, I'm going to go through some of these pretty quickly. But you remember Jesus spoke often about who he was and he used the bread as an illustration of who he was. John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. In Luke 22, that bread finds its way into another setting of a covenant meal that's being eaten. This is the Passover meal. And this is the final meal Jesus is going to eat with them where he installs what you and I celebrate as communion, a meal of remembrance. And he says this, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this bread, this table of bread illustrates, represents, proclaims the one who would come one day as the bread of life. Come to us from heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread come down from heaven. Well, the tabernacle came down from heaven, right? So there's this illustration that makes us look to the day. All these roadmaps. You know, I'm sorry. I mean, when people stand before God and say, well, you know, it really wasn't clear to me. Who you were, trying to figure out who Jesus is historically. I've read a lot of books about that. Uh, You know, the breadcrumb trail is pretty stinking elaborate. You got all these illustrations. God wrote down all kinds of stuff thousands of years before Christ was here in a physical body, making himself pretty clear. But, you know, if you and I decide, oh, I don't really care to read any of that, hey, good luck. When you stand before God and God says, I gave you all that information. I revealed myself to you all over the place. You know, you didn't take the time to read it. 
it would have led you, a trail of crumbs, one after another would have led you until one day you were staring at somebody's feet and you looked up. And it was Jesus Christ and all this prophecy and all this illustration in the Bible led you to him. So this tabernacle illustrates Christ. But it's not just an illustration of Christ. It's a means of drawing near to God. So how does this help me draw near? How does this awareness help me draw near? Well, all of us are going to be aware that, that we feel disqualified to being near God. How is it that I'm ever going to feel like I really do have permission to come near to God? Well, that's the very nature of what a covenant does. It's God approaching us and he says, I am making this arrangement with you. Be known, nation of Israel. It's, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of nations. Matter of fact, I chose you because I set my love on you. And you were the least of all the nations, by the way. So you, you're not impressive. There's no reason that you need to find in you that makes you feel okay to come to me. I chose you and you're not going to find a reason because I couldn't find a reason in you. So I found the reason in me. And I chose you out of that which was in my heart rather than out of that which you had produced that I was impressed by. Therefore, you may come to me. So how do I know that I can come to God today? How can I draw near to God today? Well, because I'm in a relationship with him that's based on something in his heart and not based on something that I did or didn't do. So I have confidence to draw near, right? Because the acceptance is based in Christ. This bread reminds me of that. What about this lampstand? There is a lampstand there. You can see it in the illustration there. It's set across from the table of bread. And there's a lot of great insights here. I just want to capture one major dimension of it. It's in verse 31. We'll just look at the design of this lampstand. Chapter 25, it says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. And then look down in verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it. The lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. All right, so what's the, what's the illustration here? What's the thing to be mindful of as you came beyond this veil into this holy place? There was a lamp there and there was attending to that lamp that the priests were to trim the wicks and to make sure the oil always flowed and that there was perpetual light being given into this place where they were going to serve. When you walked into the holy place, you encountered light. To draw near to God, it takes light to draw near. Remember, this is God's means of dwelling with us, right? What is this light? Well, this light, just like all the pieces that are here, are an illustration of Christ before they are anything else. So how, how is Christ revealed in the Lamb? John chapter 1 verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He 
was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the Bible makes clear that the light of men is the life of Jesus Christ. He is the light. Jesus proclaimed that he was the way and the truth and the light. The Bible all over the place is illustrating this. And there, if you just meditated on these verses in John, boy, you'd have quite a mouthful and quite a lot of thought to ponder. Right? Everything that got made was touched, designed, fashioned, and originated in Christ. Everything. So when this verse turns around and says what it says, all these things were made through him. So if, if you and I want to know, okay, well, so then, then why does this exist? And why does that exist? And why does time exist? And why does breath exist? And why does brainwave activity exist? And why does money exist? And why does talent and gifts and abilities exist? Why does any of this stuff exist? And I would oppress you on that and say, hey, give me a reason for that. You got talents? You got gifts? You got something you do that's really, you know, noteworthy? Why? Why? I mean, isn't that the great quest for most of us? We want to figure out what makes me an individual. What am I any good at? And we, we try to figure out why. Why do I have this talent? What do I do with this ability that I have to think a certain way or reason a certain way? You know, go get a degree in X, Y, or Z. Why does this stuff exist in me? And you and I are on a quest from the moment we're little children onward to figure out what do I do with this? What do I do with this life? How do I answer that question? How are you answering that question? In today's world, things that used to be clear are no longer clear. So there's fresh questions in all kinds of new categories. Right? I mean, it used to be clear you were, you were a man or a woman. And that's not being treated like it's clear anymore. Now you have to decide which one am I, regardless of what it looks like I am. Which one am I? And how do I navigate those feelings and those issues? So you've got roles in your life. Why does that exist? You're a husband, you're a mother, sister or brother, a friend, you're a coworker, you're a boss, you're a person with authority, you work in the government, whatever it is. Why does that exist? And you're left trying to find an answer for that. And this verse says this, all things were made through him. So everything that got made has an origin in Christ. And then it says, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. So you and I are on this quest. We do live in a dark world. It's very hard to find the answers to these questions without any light. What's the first thing you do when you walk into a dark room? You turn the light on, right? Does anybody not do that? What are you, like a vampire or something? What are you... Nobody walks into a dark room and just says, you know, I don't want any light. I just want to stumble around and just try and figure out what the heck's going on in this room. I've never been in this room before, but I just would prefer to just try and figure it out on my own. No, light comes in and you and I know we need the light to figure out our lives. 
But this is where the light is. This is where the light is in this tabernacle. It is the life of Christ. The life was the light. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Right, so that's very interesting because life and light sit in the same context as well in the Psalms. And basically it says this, in your light do we see light. So this means you and I can't self-light. There's no self-lighting going on here. In his life is light. So when you and I go to figure out life, what do I do? Who am I? Why do I live this life? What do I do next? I need light for that. And that light is Jesus Christ. His existence. His purpose. If you, if you sat and asked the hard questions, because I know there'd be many of us today that are obsessed with trying to do something in our lives, with our lives, figure out what to do next. How many of us have, have figured out it is the light of Christ and his life and who he is that determines the light that helps me figure out who I am and what I do? And to try and do that without Christ is truly to stumble in the dark. Trying to make use of your life, your talents, your personality, etc. John 8 verse 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Alright, read that verse again, but... Now think about those who don't follow him. If having light comes as a result of following Christ, what happens to those who choose not to follow Christ? They don't have light. They walk in darkness. Can you understand why the most important thing about your life is who is Jesus Christ? And what is his purpose when he created everything? And you are just a piece of that creation that has a much bigger purpose. It's amazing how we have elevated individuality to a place where we want to discover something about us and then define our existence out of something we've discovered about us. I've got a talent. People recognize this about me. I've got a name. I've got influence. I am something. That must be how I'm supposed to live my life. That's what I'm supposed to be about. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't use your talents, but you can't know what to do with those talents if you don't have any light. And that light comes from this life. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Can you just see in this plan... When you walk into this tabernacle, remember there are layers and layers of skins on this tent and it's dark in there. And the only light you have is coming from the lamp that is shining into that setting. And whatever you're going to know to do next, it's going to be informed by that light. However you conduct your life, it will be because of that light. What it provides to you enables you to serve before God with your life. And that's the illustration that's here. And we're called to walk in this light. 
Isaiah 2 verse 5 says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. John picks this up in the New Testament. 1 John 1 verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I think John is picking up tabernacle language there. Because in one moment, he, he just picked up the three pieces of the holy place just now. You enter that place having been cleansed. You experience fellowship, the table, and the light of God's presence is that in which we live in. All right, this is... This is a call for us. You know, if I want to experience the presence of God, I'm going to need to live in the light. I'm going to need to walk in the light. And as I conduct my life in the light, it creates a fellowship for me with God and with others who are doing likewise. So this lampstand illustrates a means for you and I to engage the presence of God. Listen, you know... And you, you could be signing on for some form of Christianity that the Bible, if you read your Bible carefully, it would, it would pounce on the idea that you can go through the motions of these things with a heart that's disconnected. No, you cannot. Not in God's plan. You cannot. So, you know, just because you read a Bible sometimes or just because you show up in a meeting like this, that doesn't mean you're walking in the light. That you'll know right now in this building right now if you're walking in the light. This is nothing you're hiding. I'm not saying every aspect of your life is everybody's business, but you'd have no problem talking about anything if you needed to. No one could walk up to you and you'd wonder, oh, what does he want? I know him from across town. Is there anything about your life right now that if we just decided we're going to go public with you? We have this new device. It's from Apple. And if you're carrying an Apple device, it allows us to scan everything you've done this past week, every site you visited, every thing you wrote down, every comment you made on Facebook, every interest that you have. And so we're just going to randomly put your stuff up on the screen here for a few minutes and let us peruse it. All right, how many of you guys would be able to say, no problem? Go right ahead. Because you walk in the light in such a way. There's nothing that you're doing in your life that you think God's kind of not hip with. And if God's hip with it, you don't need to worry about what anybody else in this room thinks. But if you're here and you're like, hey, that would not be a cool gadget for me to have go to work on my week. Then... Then, then here's what's getting short-circuited here, right? We come to a church, we sing songs about the presence of God. We're after the presence of God. We want to experience the presence of God. But here God illustrates, if you will walk in the light, you will have fellowship with me as well as with others. But if you will not follow Christ and you will not walk in the light, then you walk in darkness. 
But yet we want to walk out of here thinking, oh man, that's such an awesome church. I experienced the presence of God today. I don't know what you experienced. Could have been a good beat, had a good groove to it. I was liking that. I was really into that. One of those songs that had a, I was, I was just cool, man. If you don't walk in the light, God designed this place to have light in it. So that you and I would have fellowship with him that was genuine and open. Listen, there's nothing more liberating in your life than to be able to know. You know, I got no, I got no secrets. I got nothing in a closet that I'd ever be worried about somebody knowing. But if that's not the case for you, God installed this idea of light in our lives so that he would dwell among us and we would experience his nearness. And if God seems like he's on another planet from your life right now, it may be that you need to re-examine, how am I walking in the light with my life so that I might experience him near me? Let's look at this last dimension here. In that setting of the holy place is an altar of incense. And you have to turn over to chapter 30 to get this mentioned. Chapter 30, verse 1. It says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall cover it with pure gold, its top, and around its sides and its horns. You shall make a molding of gold around it. And in verse 6 it says, and you shall put it in front of the other veil. Veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. So in this setting that God lowered down from heaven, he put something in there that was about burning incense. And you know, I, I, you know, don't get lost in the physical dimension of that. But there's something that goes up before God in this burning of incense. Well, how does this piece of the tabernacle illustrate Christ for us? Right, well, Hebrews is... The place to go for some help in that. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of all this, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now that make intercession, you're going to see there, you look at further down your outline there, I don't want to jump ahead, but Psalm 141 likens prayer and this incense burning to each other and so does the rest of the Bible. Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. All right, so I think in the ultimate fulfillment of things, what God is looking for is not smoke and fragrance, but prayer. Prayer is 
the incense that arises before God. And we are informed that just like that priest who would go and he would, as long as he was alive, go and tend to this altar of incense and offer to God a always burning altar of incense. There was always incense going up before God. God picks that illustration up. He fast forwards it all the way to the New Testament and he drops it again in in Hebrews chapter 7. And he says, that's what the ultimate priest is doing always. He is ever living to make intercession for us. So just like that room was filled with the smoke and awareness of this offering that was pleasing to God was going up before him. And it's interesting what you would do, you would take the coals from the altar outside the tent. That's where they got the heat from. From the brazen altar where the blood was shed of the innocent lamb. And you'd take the coals from that and you'd bring it inside in this censer. And you'd set it into that altar and put the incense on those coals. And so it was what was done on the altar that provided the heat for the aroma that went up into these incense burning. And what was done on that altar was what Christ did on our behalf to die in our place. And he, he takes that before God as our ultimate priest. And it says he always lives before the throne of God, which is what that ark is going to illustrate. Before the throne of God, he has always got prayers going up on our behalf. Did you, did you know that? Did you know that at every moment of your existence, if you belong to him, he is always interceding for you? I mean, I'm blessed when anybody comes up to me and says, hey, hey, man, I was praying for you this week. I, you know, I, I really, I feel so blessed by that. An awareness that somebody stood before the throne of God on my behalf and said something, called upon God for me. Do you know the Son of God does that always? Right, that illustration in this holy place, that instance was never to go out. It was always to be before God. And that's what Jesus' prayer is doing for you and for me. He is always making intercession for us. Right, what... What a critical thing to be aware of, right? When you and I go to do life this week. What a critical thing to be aware of when you and I go to draw near and an argument arises from within us that says, you can't, you can't possibly be serious. You can't go before God. Are you kidding me? You don't even know what you're doing. What would you say? What would you pray? And after what you've done, and man, and you know, you haven't been around God in forever, and you're going to decide, now you're going to decide? But to know that there's incense that goes up on my behalf by the one who offers it always before God. He is interceding on my behalf. That's, that's got to help me draw near. It should help me draw near. But what that, what that place also is, it's a place of prayer for us with God. We pray and those prayers ascend before God as well. He, uh, Revelation chapter 8 Verse 1 says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, right? In Revelation, we're, we're getting the Apostle John's view of the heavens. So when he gazes into the tabernacle, 
He's not gazing at that one that was uh, put together back there by Moses and the gang. This is the heavenly one that Moses stared at and said, okay, I'm supposed to build that. Okay, got it. All right. And he goes down and builds it. When John looks into the heavens, he's looking at the heavenly tabernacle. He says this, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He's got a censer in his hand. There's an altar being spoken of. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Do you see this altar of incense still in heaven? And what's on this? What's being offered? It is, it is the intercession of the Son of God. But it is also yours and mine and our prayers being offered before this throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. God has given us a place of drawing near. We draw near to God by prayer. It is a means that God uses for us to experience his nearness. And you'll remember, I put this Isaiah chapter 56 in your outline there. When God declares that his house would be a house of prayer for all peoples. Of all the designations, right? This tabernacle becomes the temple, becomes the house of God. And it is a house of prayer. One of the chief things that we are to be about as a people is to perpetually always be burning incense of our prayers before the throne of God. This is why Jesus, you know, when Jesus walks in and knocks all the tables over and has a, has a tough day in the temple that, that day, it's not just because uh, you people are ripping each other off. That, you know, that was true. And you and I would think, yeah, yeah, Jesus taking up at a little guy. Uh, that's what I like about Jesus. He's that hero, the underdog man. He shows up for the people who are down and out and he takes up their case. Um, well, he kind of did that. Kind of did that. But what he said, why he did it, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer and you have turned it into something else. A den of thieves. The most offensive part of it was my father had a purpose for this place and you have ignored it. You've turned it into something else. Listen, don't run around and go, oh no, Jesus is here the underdog. That's why he did this. No, no, he was jealous for his father's purpose more than anything else. And it just so happened you're also ripping each other off here. And that ain't right either. But you and I live in this setting. A setting where we draw near to God through prayer. Man, I, and I know the busyness of life and all that's going on that just eats away at this realm. And I don't want to run off into this individual topic here, but But there is an aspect to you and I experiencing the presence of God that simply isn't going to happen without a prayer life that sits in the presence of God and waits for him. You and I will talk about, dream about, cross our fingers and hope for something from God that we will seldom experience. And and let me just, 
me just highlight, you know, I'm put in, in this passage, Numbers chapter 16. This is a sobering, sobering, sobering reality. Numbers chapter 16, fast forward uh, from Mount Sinai. They're still there. Well, actually, they've departed at this point. Uh, so we've been about a year at Mount Sinai. We've got all this revelation about a tabernacle. And so they have moved on finally from the mountain of God. And there are a bunch of people moving. And this little guy named Korah decides to raise a question. And his question basically is, you know, Moses and Aaron, who do you guys think you are? Telling us all this stuff and how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do. Who died and left you in charge? And he gets a bunch of other people that feel like, yeah, yeah, that's right. We're with Korah. And God basically says, oh, really? You're with Korah? Well, you're done. And God moves against Korah and those who rose up and questioned what God was doing. And he began to annihilate them. And watch what happens here in Numbers 16. This is sobering. This this would touch whether you and I pray. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said and he ran into the midst of the assembly and behold the plague had already begun among the people and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. What stopped the devastation that was about to consume all these people? The incense. The intercession. The intercession of Aaron the high priest. Aren't you glad that our high priest ever lives to make intercession before the throne of God. One commentator says, the action of Aaron who literally stands between the living and the dead demonstrates the value and urgency of intercession which Christians do through prayers which ascend to God like incense. Right, sobering reality. Eric, you, can, you guys can come back up. Sobering, sobering, sobering reality because when we get to revelation and we get a glimpse into this heavenly thing, the incense that's coming up before God in that is the incense of the intercession of the Son of God and it is our prayers as well. Part of me wishes it were not so. I don't want that kind of role. I don't want any kind of thought that I'm supposed to take my censer and run between the living and the dead and raise my prayers to God on behalf of those who are about to face judgment. I, I, I don't want that role. You want that role? But apparently, we have some kind of role like that. Because these prayers rise before God. 
It's what John sees in the heavens. And it is a means for you and I to draw near to God. This is, this is God's means of drawing near to him, experiencing him. You know, when you intercede, when you intercede the way the Bible describes interceding, it, it is with an awareness of, of who God is and the situation of man. If you avoid that, if you never take up the lives of people, if you never stare into their future, if you don't own the sense of what awaits those who don't walk with God for the glory of God, if that never touches you, you're going to have a hard time experiencing the presence of God. Because when God draws near, you become aware of these things and intercession. Looking at life the way God sees life. You you understand, this wouldn't fly today. Because God doesn't respond to the chorus of the world like that. God's tolerant, isn't he? Hey, look, you write your own Bible. I'm just reading from the one that's holy. And this one says, yes, he did. Well, Keith, what would make you think God would do that? Well, because it recorded the story where he did. I'm sorry, I've got evidence and witnesses. So I'm not making this stuff up. So our, you know, again, we're more educated by the world than we are anything else. And the world tells us, oh, don't worry about that kind of stuff. You know, God's not all that jazzed up about that. God's nice, everybody's nice. Nobody's that bad anyway. Hey, all these guys did was say, hey, who died and left you in charge? You've never done that? And the action that needed to be taken was somebody needing to know where to find a censer and how to get some incense and bring it before God on their behalf and make a difference in the outcome of their lives. Never start believing your prayers don't matter. They matter. Even if you don't get that one day, you get to stick your head up in heaven and see, hey, hey, that smoke going up before God, that was my prayer. I saw my prayer. That was my prayer in that bowl right there. Did you see that? You're just thinking, oh, I'm just kneeling in my closet, just, you know, talking to nothing. Doing my prayer thing. No, no, in the heavens, this is a rising before the throne of God. And according to this passage, God is taking action based on what he just smelled. That's a little sobering, isn't it? Might make me want to make room for a prayer life. Oh, and by the way, before you go, I'm Keith, I already feel condemned. I'm going to walk out of here. I don't have a prayer life. Uh, Listen, your condemnation got dealt with where? In the outer court at the cross. And so right now, we're in the incense department. So what you ought to be able to say is, I know I'm not condemned, and I also know I don't have a prayer life. I need to get on that. That's what you need to say. Not, oh, you make me feel so guilty. Listen, I'm not making you feel guilty. You know what's making you feel guilty? The cheap, quick, shallow glance you get at that altar when you pass by it. That's what's making you feel guilty. Stop making me feel bad for that. You feel bad for it. You feel so bad that you actually pick up Exodus, read it, pick up Hebrews and read it, and walk away going, wow, taken away. He really did mean taken away, didn't he? Yep, taken away, completely taken away. Never to be used as a penalty against me again. Yep, what if I don't burn incense? Still not used. 
but we want the presence of God, don't we? I do. And I know I need some help, and I sincerely mean that. The music helps me to engage God's presence. This tabernacle helps me to engage God's presence. That's what God was doing in this holy place just before the veil where he manifested his life to us. So let's stand together. Eric's going to lead us. Father, we are so grateful that you want to be with us. Lord, in our hearts, there's nothing that we want more than that ourselves. So Lord, help, help us, Lord. We hate the fact that we feel so distant from you sometimes. The sweetness and the depth and the reality of all that you are feels so far away. God, all these rich things are true. Therefore, let us draw near. That's our you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid, bearing all my sin and shame. In love you came and gave amazing grace. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands Wash me in your cleansing flow Now all I know Your forgiveness and embrace Worthy is the
praise you God that you in your wisdom sent your son to pay our debt to make our conscience clean Lord to remove from us the wrath that was rightfully due us Lord and so we who have trusted in you we we stand on that assurance and that promise Lord that we are, are forgiven Lord, that our debt is paid, that we are one with you. Lord, but we ask you, God, we ask you this week, Lord, today, would you help us to live in light of what this 
assurance means to us. Lord, would we, would we trust in your presence? Would we trust in what Jesus has bought for us? Lord, would we draw near to you? Lord, would we be people who live in the light? Lord, would we be people who, who walk daily needing your bread? Lord, would we people, be people who trust in you for healing? Lord, because of what Jesus has done. We love you, Jesus. Lord, you are our, our worthy lamb. Lord, seated on the throne, and we, we worship you this week with our lives. Lord, may that be so. In your name, amen. Amen.